Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here with you in church this morning. I'm Father Daniel, the rector here at St. Thomas. And we're going to be looking at our New Testament lesson this morning, uh, Romans chapter 12. Um, but before we jump in, you can see where verses 9 through 21 uh, is in the lecture. I just want to back up for a moment and look at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Because uh, what these do is really set the stage for this entire chapter. And I actually think that the high call that we see from the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 through 2, um, he's starting to flesh that out practically in ways that we can apply um, in verses 9 through 21. So let me read uh, these two verses just to remind us. We heard these last week in our service. Um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, those verses are a beautiful call. And if you're like me, you go, what in the world does that mean? Like, what's it look like to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? What's it look like uh, to actually not be conformed to this world, but to live out our lives by a different ethic? Um, the ethics of the kingdom, the ethics of the gospel. What does it look like for a church, a community, uh, to be filled with the grace and truth and righteousness and glory and beauty that participates in the life of the triune God with one foot in this world and one foot firmly planted um, in the age to come. It's challenging to discern how should we live? How do we respond? What does it look like in practice to follow Jesus, to be transformed and not conformed um, to this world? And I think in our section this morning, um, in verses 9 through 21, uh, the Apostle Paul is fleshing out what this looks like in two different arenas uh, of our lives. Uh, the first one, uh, verses 9 through 13, um, has to do with kind of within the household of God. Uh, within our relational spheres, those who we're connected to, um, what's it look like uh, to pursue the gospel and live that out with one another? Verses 9 through 13. And the next section is a little trickier, verses 14 through 21. Um, how do we live this out with our neighbors, um, with those who we aren't as connected with, with those who we may not know as well? So that's what I want to look at this morning, gospel relationships with one another, and then gospel relationships with our neighbors, um, even or maybe especially uh, when, it's, when it's awkward, let's say. Um, so first, verse 9, uh, the apostle Paul is going to lead with love, which he always does. <laughs> Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What kind of love is the Apostle Paul talking about here? Um, a few things. One is there's the genuine love. It's not a fake love. It's not a hypocritical love. It's probably not just romance or a feeling that we have. 
Uh, I'm pretty certain that this is not just Southern politeness, <laughs> where we're just kind to one another because we're supposed to be, because we're mannerable uh, folks. Now, what is love? What's it mean to love one another? I think for the Apostle Paul, um, this is something incredibly uh, tangible and visible, something that we can see that's actually demonstrated. So in another part of the New Testament, uh, John, uh, in 1 John, he puts it this way. He says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. He goes on, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the kind of active, visible, costly love that Paul is calling this community to and their gospel relationships uh, with one another. This is not bless your heart kind of love. This is cruciform. And, and a few things, as I think about this love, uh, the love that we have seen that the Lord Jesus has for us, um, at least three things. I mean, it's, it's impossible to exhaust and fully understand the depth of God's love for you and me. You know that, right? But a few things that are really clear is that God's love is proactive. It comes and seeks us out. And it comes before we are ready. Earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul was really clear. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He didn't wait. It's proactive. Um, it leans in. It pursues. Secondly, this love is costly. There's a sacrificial element to it. Um, a little bit later, he talks about uh, contributing uh, generously, materially, to the needs of the saint, opening ourselves up to show hospitality. First John, if you see someone in need, um, you go and meet it. That's costly. It requires sacrifice. Um, and the third thing we see is that love, uh, as we think about biblical love, um, it's, it's focused on the good of the other. It's outward focused. And so Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. As we think about one another, as we think about what it means to love each other, we're going, hey, we're curious, what's, what would bless you? What would help you flourish? What do you need? Um, it's proactive, it's costly, and it's other-focused. It's for the sake of others. Uh, for Paul, that's a, that's a compass, that's a true north on gospel ethics, on the ethics of the kingdom, of how we would live out our faith and our relationships with one another. He leads with love. Always. And then look what the Apostle Paul says. Verse uh, 9, after he says, let love be genuine, um, you get this full statement that's really almost generic. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast uh, to what is good. Now, in some places in the New Testament, when Paul does this, he'll talk about things that are evil, and then he'll give a big list. Here are the things that are wrong. Here are the things you don't want to do. Here's what I'm talking about. Um, and then in other places, if he says, hey, do well, or do the things that are good, or let's see the fruit of the Spirit, he'll go, and here's a list of what those things look like. And he spells it out. 
But in reality, Paul can actually be pretty generic because I think for Paul, he would say that even those of us who, whether we're close to the Lord or far from the Lord, there is something internally in us that has a sense of what is evil and what is good. We might call that a conscience. We might disagree of some of the particularities and details, but there's a sense that some things are good and some things are evil. Um, there can be a kind of consensus around these things more naturally. Um, C.S. Lewis actually would uh, go on to argue in the 20th century that this internal um, conscience that we have is, is evidence itself of the existence of God and us being created in his image. Why do we all have this internally? Even if, again, we can disagree about some of the, the details, um, we have an intuitive, instinctive sense that some things are evil and some things are good. And what Paul says is abhor what is evil and hold fast uh, to what is good. Um, and I think if we've been reading Romans, I mean, Romans 1 through 11 are just dense theology. He's arguing from the scriptures. And then he's like, all right, have you had enough? The rest of it's all application. Um, the rest of Romans, like, none of this is terribly difficult to understand, is it? I mean, it's hard to practice. It's challenging to kind of look in the mirror and go, how do I line up with these instructions? Um, but it's not an enigma. <laughs> it's not a puzzle to solve when Paul says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Because Paul would say, if you want to hold fast to what is good, um, the world has never seen goodness incarnate like the Lord Jesus. You've never seen beauty like the death and resurrection of the Lord who loved you, a love that was proactive and costly and focused on you. So when I read this, I just in shorthand in my head say, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is goodness incarnate, the Lord Jesus. And if you're holding fast to him, you're going to be guided in the right direction as you think about our relationships with one another. And then after this kind of very brief gospel ethic, Paul will list some specific ways that this might take place uh, within a community. So he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, there's an appropriate degree of closeness and friendship and affection uh, between those who are rooted in the gospel together. Um, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, I love that. Encourage one another. Cheer one another on. Don't seek the spotlight for yourself to incur um, honor. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, um, and verse 12 is a, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. All of these stack up as a list of gospel virtues. Here's what it looks like to care for one another, to live this out um, in a community. And it's a, it's a long list. Um, I don't do this often, but I'm going to give you some homework assignments this week. Um, I would just say, if you have some time, if you'd like to take me up on this this week, spend some time with these, these verses. Grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, 
read through and see which of these stand out as a next step for me to grow in. Um, Because if you're like me and you read this, you might just get paralyzed. (laughs) Because we probably have room to grow in every one of these areas. But the Lord is patient with us. He's gracious towards us. And growth in the Lord usually happens slowly, step by step, as he shows us the next thing that it's time to work on. Um, And so I would just say, read this list through and see what stands out. Ask the Holy Spirit to highlight where the Lord would like you to grow, where there's an opportunity to grow. And then maybe look this through and also go, well, where's where's the place I've seen the Lord grow me already? Give thanks for that. Um, It's okay, instead of kind of looking at this list and being paralyzed to go, oh, here's how the Lord's grown me in these areas oh, here's some area I still have to grow. Because Romans tells us that if you're following Jesus, there will be a lifelong process of being conformed and made into the image of his son. The Lord is chiseling slowly. He's asking you to go step by step as he is growing you. Um, And he's doing that by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We cooperate with the work of the Spirit internally. We cooperate with the highs and lows that we experience and encounter in life to go, how is the Lord using this to shape and grow and mold and conform me to the image of his son? And the other thing I do notice here is that this list of gospel virtues, it's not a call to self-righteousness. It's not a call to works righteousness. It's for the person who has come to God in repentance and faith. And that's when that work of the Holy Spirit, that deep, long, transformative work of renewal begins. And the other thing I notice is that, I mean, I've given you an assignment to kind of go with your journal, but very little of this happens by yourself. It happens in a community. It happens in the messiness of other people and their lives and their problems and their temperaments and things you like and dislike Um, It's as you are in a community, um, in the mess of that, that God uses it to shape you and mold you and grow you. And the the scriptures would tell us that even the community of faith can itself, as it grows in these areas, proclaim the gospel to a watching world. St. Tertullian, in the second century, he's from North Africa, he's a bishop, says that people would look at the church and go see how they love each other. And it, that tells me there's an opportunity for us to grow in these areas and be seen by those who need to know this kind of love. Um, it also tells me that for many of us, we could probably look and say, like, does our community, <laughs> when they look at the church, go, oh, see how they love each other? Are we marked by this kind of love that is proactive and costly, and focus on the good of others. That's part of the challenge here. Um, Paul will, by the way, he's going to keep going. He's going to stay in our business. (laughs) Because the next thing he's going to ask is if that's, I mean, it's hard enough in the household of faith. Um, But what about with our neighbors? What about those who feel kind of outside of the community? Um, How do we interact with them? And I would say Paul's going to give us two different angles, one that's positive and one that's a little more negative. 
And so uh, first, um, well, I probably have to do this. <laughs> okay, here's what Paul writes here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That doesn't sound fun. How about you? The next one, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Um, <laughs> when I read that passage, um, first of all, I'm really tempted because we have a dear brother in our midst who's an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. Yeah. They lost last night. Um, and so, like, I'm tempted to go, like, yeah, like, I'm kind of sad that my brother's sad. Um, like, that's a tough thing for me to admit, to grow in grace in that area. Um, but that's, I mean, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Um, here's what it tells me. Like, I tell you that half-joking, but like, I know this guy, and I know that that's something he cares about. Um, and I actually think to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep means that we are curious and actively involved in the lives of people around us. We know what would make them rejoice. We know what would make them weep. Um, and when they're rejoicing, we cheer alongside them. And when they're weeping, we put our arm around them. Hey, tough night, man. Um, that's part of what the call is as we think about our neighbors. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright, uh, he writes on this passage, it will not do just because the society around us is potentially or actually hostile to adopt a snooty attitude. Much better to know how to establish common ground and to find ways of making friends. Here it seems to refer more generally uh, to the call for Christians to get alongside their neighbors and fellow citizens instead of hiving off into a kind of a ghetto. We're supposed to know people. We're supposed to get involved in their lives. We're supposed to know what will make them cheer and what will make them cry. We're supposed to be good neighbors in that sense. Verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, that sounds good, but I don't know about you. Have you ever had a bad neighbor? Like, it can be really tough. I mean, like, when I, I was growing up, our neighbor on the left side of our house, probably the most difficult, prickly individual on the street. Like, if I was in our backyard, and we were playing soccer, football, whatever, um, within the fence, okay, our neighbor would come out and yell at us and say we were too close on our property to the fence and we were trampling on the roots of their plants because they had lined the fence with plants and they wanted them to grow so they did not have to see us ever again. <laughs> that was their reality. They wanted, to, and I was like, look, if you... Make some more money, buy some land. You clearly don't want neighbors. I get it. Um, and it was like, it, I mean, that sounds silly, but like, man, it was pretty frustrating. Like, they would come out and yell at us, and then they would come, like, ring the doorbell and talk to my parents, like, hey, they're, they're, they're trampling the roots again. And they're like, they're in our yard. <laughs> but you know what happened on Sunday morning. We got up and got in our cars and went to church. And they got up and got in their car and went to church. 
And I would just say the most prickly person on the block should never be (laughs) the church-going Christian. They should be known as someone who exhibits grace, someone who exhibits uh, beauty and goodness and glory and is not putting themselves first. Now, that's a trivial example, right? It's a trivial example. Uh, But Paul does assume that we're going to come into conflict at some point with our neighbors. There's going to be a place of friction and and pressure and frustration and real damage uh, may be done uh, back and forth. And so verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And by the way, before you ask, that is not a passive-aggressive loophole. (laughs) To go, I'm going to get the coals on your head. (laughs) No. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is one of the most countercultural, counterintuitive teachings in the entire Bible. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not only is it countercultural and counterintuitive, you and I, at our most honest moments, would say, I don't even think that works. Like, that's how you get run over. That's how you let people keep attacking you. Like, that's really evil, and it's really bad. And the only way to meet that is evil for evil. What does it mean to overcome evil uh, with good? Um, Well, a couple things. First, um, Paul is not minimizing evil. He's not minimizing sin. He's not minimizing death or pain or hardship. He sees them as very, very real. In fact, again, back to Romans 5, Paul wrote, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, that's how serious some of this evil is. Um, But there's two things at work here, and they're, man, they, they, they almost challenge our hope and our faith more than things like the resurrection, because it just doesn't seem like this works in life. And so the first challenge here is to just actually realize Um, We are not called to stand in the place of God as arbiter over another person or their actions. When the Lord says, vengeance is mine, leave it to the Lord, that doesn't mean that we ignore or we minimize. We can actually trust things that are too big for us to even handle. Say, Lord, we're going to trust you to deal with that. In your timing and in your way, and we're going to trust that it's going to be good and righteous and perfect and peaceable. The second thing that's maybe even harder to think about, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, is that in many cases, what Paul is hoping for is we encounter hostility and persecution and pressure and pain uh, with our neighbors, is that those very neighbors that we see as our enemies that are doing us harm could one day find their place in the household of God and be our sibling in the faith. 
Think about it. Those who come to God in repentance and faith, you and me, we've been forgiven. What would it look like to have the imagination that that could overflow to those around us who hurt even us? That your worst enemy could one day be your brother or sister in the faith. And that would seem completely absurd and like it could never happen, but we're in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was enemy number one of the church. He put Christians to death. He sought to arrest them, to throw them in prison until he had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. I have to think that in some way the church was praying for him was wondering, this zealous person, a misguided zeal, but this zealous person is doing what he thinks is best. Everyone is just trying to do their best in life for the most part. Um, they're trying to do their best. It is harming the church, and then he needs an intersection, an interaction, an encounter with the living God who then transforms him. I don't know about you, that's hard for me. To go, that person that has harmed me or hurt me or I see as an enemy, to be like, man, what would it look like if instead of repaying their evil with more evil, I prayed for them to have an encounter with the living God? I don't have to condone what they've done. I don't have to pretend it was okay or didn't hurt. I can merely pray, Lord, would you encounter them? We're going to leave them up to you to encounter, and we're going to pray for them, and we're going to hope for them. Uh, St. Jerome, who translated the, the Latin Vulgate, um, the, the, that text of the scriptures, said, we are not to revile and condemn our enemy as the world does, but rather we are to correct them and lead them to repentance so that they can be won over by our good deeds and that softened by the fire of charity, they may cease to be an enemy. Abraham Lincoln, not a church father, but here's what he said. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. That's the imagination the New Testament has. When we're told over and over and over and over again to love our enemies, I don't think that's supposed to be a timeless command. We're not trying to grit our teeth for eternity and love that enemy. We're supposed to hope that somehow in the economy and wisdom and goodness of God, they could be transformed into a friend. And we can think that that's possible because the Apostle Paul was transformed from the chief enemy of the church until the man who wrote half the New Testament. I think if we think about our own lives, there's ways in which we would say, man, we were, we were far from God, and look what he's done. And we would hope that for others, if they feel far from God, that God would seek them out, that God would intersect their lives, that they would encounter the living Lord. Our ultimate aim for our enemies is that they would repent and become part of the family of faith. Um, there's another passage in 1 Thessalonians, the same author Paul wrote, Right, to make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong 
but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We don't repay evil for evil. We seek to overcome it by doing good. Um, And I'm getting near the end of my time, but I would just again say there is nothing more countercultural, more counterintuitive, more we don't think this actually works. And I'll illustrate this for you briefly. I think that the idea of revenge, repaying evil for evil, is one of the most entertaining, dominant themes that you'll see in any novel, literature, film, song, musical, you name it. Revenge sells. It's intriguing. It's rooted in like a really good conflict, and then it comes around to resolve and revenge. I mean, Shakespeare's Hamlet, that's a revenge story. Um, The Count of Monte Cristo, It's a long revenge story. Like revenge is a dish best served cold. You wait. You smile. You don't heap coals. You heap ice on their heads and wait to exact our revenge. Um, I'm going to date myself, but like every Quentin Tarantino film (laughs) is just a revenge story, right? Um, Sweeney Todd, the musical, revenge story. The Princess Bride, my name is Anigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. Why do you think revenge sells so well? I think it's because we all have places of deep pain and hurt. And occasionally we can just fantasize what would it be like to pay them back the way we think they deserve. And so we can see it in film, we can see it, and we can see it play out. Deep down, we have something that we want to get payback for. And two quick things about that. Um, One, um, the Lord Jesus can meet you in the midst of that pain and bring healing, not quickly, but can bring healing and wholeness. We can hope for restoration, even if there's not reconciliation. Uh, with that individual. The second thing is that in almost every good revenge story, there's a good person who's really been harmed. And by the end of it, that good person who has really been harmed, they themselves become a monstrous figure. Because they've allowed the harm that person has done to injure them twice. Um, When we seek revenge, we don't just repay evil for evil. Um, We let evil twist us up inside to then repay evil uh, for evil. And we see that lesson uh, time and time again. So I would just say one last homework assignment. This is about our neighbors. This is about maybe a coworker or a boss. This is about someone who has wronged you. A significant way. And I would just encourage you in the same way, take this passage this week. Take some paper, grab a pen, pray it through and see what is highlighted. See if there's an area here where you can take a next step. Or again, where you can see that the Lord has already led you. And then give thanks to him. And give thanks to him that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That his love was proactive. His love was costly. And it was for our good. 
and then wonder about being part of a church, part of a Christian community, part of a family on mission where we will be growing in these areas together. And our city that so needs it would look in and go, oh, see how they love each other. And they'll be curious and they'll ask questions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.